Have you been out birding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com ABA. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. Seems like there's a lot of not-so-great news out there in the world. Maybe a little anxiety-inducing, a little nerve-wracking. It's all just a little heavy. Would you like to hear some good news, some inspirational news? Fair warning, it starts out, as many of these stories do, as not good news, but it, it improves. So let me tell you a story. And bear in mind that this all sort of happened really quickly in the last 10 days, two-week period. So a little bit of a whiplash thing going on. Last week, we in the birding community and the ABA generally got some frustrating news about the Valley Land Fund, which is a nonprofit organization that essentially protects wild spaces in South Texas from development. They do different things. They purchase the property outright. They will work with land private landowners, et cetera. It's, it's a small but effective force for wildlife and conservation in a place that badly needs that sort of thing. One of these properties that the Valley Land Fund manages is called Salineño Preserve, which is this little patch of land right on the Rio Grande in Starr County near Roma. So it's up the river from all the main Texas hotspots, but it's one that has a lot of history, a lot of birding history at least. Uh, there's a pretty reliable spot for Morlet Seed Eater, formerly white-collared seed eater, in the vicinity. But the Salineño Preserve itself used to be known as the Dewins, uh, the Dewins Feeder, after a winter Texan couple who were the last residents of an old RV park there. That is sort of a normal thing in South Texas. A lot of people retire to South Texas, particularly from the Midwest and in the Plains provinces of Canada. Uh, they come down, they they live on these sort of RV parks, and they turn them into kind of semi-permanent things. It's, it's, it's sort of unusual, but it's a very South Texas sort of thing. Anyway, the DeWins had this super elaborate feeder setup that became somewhat famous when they hosted a small group of brown jays, uh, actually the last reliable brown jays in the ABA area. This was sometime in the mid-2000s. Gail DeWind used to put up fried chicken skin on the feeder, and that's what the brown jays liked. That's what they came for. Uh, I recall him also putting out like marshmallows, those big campfire s'more marshmallows. I'll just say Gail was a bird-feeding pioneer. I think that's safe. Another thing, and this is totally a side note when I think about um, the DeWins, uh, the two folks were uh, Gail and Pat DeWind. Gail was the husband and Pat the wife. And um, they used to think it was hilarious when people would get their names mixed up. they think Gail was the was the wife. Anyway, anyways, you might be able to tell, I've been to the site. Uh, I, like many, many other birders, I got my ABA red-billed pigeon there, right on the river. It was one of the more reliable places. Still is, I think. It's just a really lovely small patch of green space and frequently had a lot of really nice birds, even once the brown jays were no longer coming regularly. You know, fast forward, Gail and Pat donate the property to the Valley Land Fund. And though they aren't there anymore, it continues to be this really great spot for birding, a frequent stop for birders, especially those who attend the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival and take those field trips that go up into Star County. So imagine the birding community's response when the news comes out that the Valley Land Fund is planning on selling this Salineño Preserve 
to customs and border patrol so that it can be bulldozed and a big wall put up across it. That was the week before the presidential election that we got this news. And arguably, the border wall itself is on the ballot in that presidential election. Uh, To say that we were shocked would be an understatement. ABA President Jeff Gordon rallied some people on Facebook and Twitter to encourage people to email the board of the Valley Land Fund, asking them to hold that sale at least until the results of the election are known. Because if they sell, and even if no wall is built because there's a new a new presidential administration, uh, if it's no longer VLF property, it's not clear whether birders would even have access to it, and it certainly would not be managed in a way that attracts birds. So can we just like slow our roll a little bit here? Uh, evidently, there were hundreds of birders who responded, which is amazing. Thank you if you were one of them. Well, we get news last week that VLF did not slow their roll. They sold. And I don't know how much the property is worth. I found an older Texas Observer article from a couple years ago that suggests that it's less than $10,000, so not a lot. But Customs and Border Patrol, on Election Day, no less, announced that they were purchasing the property for the border wall construction. So, yeah, frustrating, right? Needless to say, the response to Valley Land Fund Online was swift and angry. That response, basically, how can an organization that claims to protect land for conservation sell that land so easily? How can you be trusted? Why would anyone work with you? These are all valid concerns and all justified given what we knew at the time. And that, friends, seemed to move the dial. So there was an emergency board meeting. Valley Land Fund rescinded the offer. They said they would not sell, would not deal with Customs and Border Patrol, said that that announcement that CBP made was premature. Salonino Preserve is apparently saved. There's your, there's, your, there's your whiplash. So thank you, thank you, thank you to those who fought, who wrote, who were angry and frustrated. It was not for nothing. We stopped it, and that feels good. And yes, Salonino is only you know, 2.5 acres, but it is our 2.5 acres, and it, we stopped a border wall, and it showed that birders have real power should we choose to flex that power. So many, many more people will get to see their ABA area red-billed pigeon there because of you who helped. So happy endings and green sprouts for a new beginning and a new normal. And that's sort of what we have on tap today. The U.S. election was two weeks ago, and we will have a new president in January. So what does that mean for birds, for birders, for conservationists? We welcome back our bird policy explainer, Tyke James. He and I talk about what's next in bird policy, what we want, what's realistic, all that stuff, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of November 2020. Hashtag November presses on with a new report of gray heron in the ABA area, this time from Virginia, where it represents the farthest south record in the ABA area and far enough down where we sort of have to start wondering whether the source population is Western Europe or the Lesser Antilles. Gray heron has been increasingly common and even breeding from the Caribbean islands of Trinidad to Montserrat in the last decade, taking that well-worn catalegrit path to the New World via West Africa. Makes you wonder how many of those birds get overlooked as great blue herons in the Southeast. Would be very easy to do. In any case, this was a first for Virginia. Very exciting bird. 
up to British Columbia, which has had a great run of Asian vagrants that continues with the discovery of common poachard in Victoria. This is a first for the province. Vagrant ducks are always subject to questions about provenance, and poachard is not uncommon in waterfowl collections and zoos and parks. But this bird is evidently not banded, and this is not an unexpected place and time of year for such a bird from East Asia, so I'll probably give it the benefit of the doubt. Over to Ontario, where a variegated flycatcher was photographed near Brooklyn, east of Toronto. This is one of the wildest birds on the ABA checklist, an almost exclusively South American austral migrant whose records in the ABA area are like a child throwing darts at a map. This is about the ABA's eighth or so, but there are records in Maine, Tennessee, Washington, Florida, Texas, and now two from Ontario. This is the second, both in the general Toronto vicinity. This is one of those birds that the photo came out a couple days after the sighting, so obviously a little disappointing. But persistent Ontario birders refound the bird a few days later, and many have been able to see it since. That is not the only rare flycatcher this week. A Cuban peewee was discovered at Big Pine Key in Monroe County, Florida. Florida Keys always good for those kind of Caribbean vagrants. And one additional first to note in the form of Ohio's first record of black-chinned hummingbird visiting a feeder in Franklin County. It's near Columbus. This is the season for vagrant hummingbirds, and we've had a number of them in the eastern part of the continent of late. That is a relatively short accounting, if you can believe it, of the many highlights for the week. As always, for a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org RBA, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare. You can also follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. We now see ourselves on the cusp of a change in leadership in the United States took a while to get that confirmation, but we have it. Joe Biden administration will replace the current one in January, and we're already seeing people looking forward to what this means for birds, public lands, conservation, and who better to invite into that conversation than Tyke James. He is, among other things, the host of the Wildlife and Politics podcast on Word for Wildlife. It's part of the Wildlife Observer Network. He joins me from Washington, D.C. Tyke, it's great to talk to you again. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Wonderful intro. I'm excited to talk about some things, some new things. Yeah. So like, like how are you feeling these days? Good? Opt optimistic? I like the idea of certainty. Certainty in who the president will be. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, and even then, all that certainty hasn't been uh, figured out yet. But we're actually here to talk about some of that certainty and uncertainty, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are some you know, as as has been said by other people in politics, some known knowns and some unknown knowns, mm. I guess. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think, you know, in the last few years, we've sort of had our eyes opened a little to the importance of what the birding community, the environmental community can bring to these sort of policy decisions. It's, it's like we have had to keep our eyes on so many things over the last four years. Uh, border wall shutting off some of our favorite valley birding sites, constant attacks on Migratory Bird Treaty Act, Endangered Species Act, uh, you did things like the duck stand. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I do think that the birding community did play a little bit of a role in pushing some of these things, and that's exciting uh, that we can make our voices heard that way. Is that what you saw? Yeah, I, I saw that. I also saw, uh, really importantly, you know, the work that organizers have done 
um, in cities like Philadelphia, Atlanta, sure. Milwaukee. We've seen the organizing, we've seen the result, and we are enjoying mm-hmm. the benefit of the work of organizers in Philadelphia, Atlanta, uh, Detroit. A Biden-Harris win is definitely getting our issues in the doorstep, but that is by no means the sure. destination yeah, of the yeah, movement. Yeah. And a lot of this movement is benefited from organizers in Atlanta, Detroit, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia. Um, you know, there are still numbers coming in. And obviously, we cannot be more proud and not give enough praise to the work, especially done in Georgia, to get folks registered, to get folks educated on the issues. And then we see what happens when more people have access to voting. You know, more people are going to vote for issues that are uh, primarily important to them, like the environment, the air they're breathing, the water they're drinking, and as well as they're going to vote to see who has their best interest in mind when it comes down to rulemaking for uh, those issues. I mean, there are so many issues out there that people could have sort of animating their decisions, but do you think that the environment issues, maybe not conservation, but sort of larger, like big picture environmental issues were part of what was animating all this, all this action? Absolutely. I think that the numbers and the turnout that we're enjoying right now our mandate for making advances in climate justice as well as economic justice and racial justice. And I think that um, the burden community should start thinking about goals. I mean, mm-hmm. for one, I, I want to just throw the hashtag out there, birding with Biden. Uh, you know, <laughs> I would love to figure out a way <laughs> to, to get the ear of the incoming president. And, you know, I think I also myself have a new appreciation for the Harris Hawk now that Vice President Harris will be uh, honoring that uh, hawk, I mean, maybe symbolically. Yeah, I know that Harris's hawk is one of those kind of questionable bird names for birds, but I'd be, I'd be open to kind of uh, maybe instead of changing the entire name, maybe changing the Harris. We'll see. Yeah, at least I'll think of her when I, when I, when I see that bird now. <laughs> at least I'll, I'll have somebody else to think about. You know, Joe Biden is from Delaware, and... Um, that where the headquarters of the American Birding Association are too. So, and that's uh, you know very important thing to think about when you're thinking about important places for birds and where the VIPs are in this country. Um, mm-hmm. It 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 just so happens you know Cory Booker running for president, Kate May that's also in New Jersey. That's right. Um, yeah. You know I think that there's opportunities for birders to generate champions. You know political champions on bird issues. Now we know that it's not enough to have the White House because we're, you know, I think a lot of folks are thinking about the Senate, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of folks are thinking like, what's the Senate majority going to be like? That also is going to describe, that's, you know, going to give us an opportunity to manage our expectations around who are going to fill these cabinet positions for the Biden-Harris administration. Yeah. Um, You know, who's going to be the folks acting out these laws and uh, executive orders that, you know, are going to fundamentally conserve birds, but also help people. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I definitely want to get to that, but before we move into the, you know, the, the roles of the, in the executive branch, like looking at the lay of the land now, the Senate, as you say, kind of open for the time being. Uh, but even with that in mind, the executive branch has a lot of leeway in setting priorities, setting policy, uh, for conservation for birds. What are some of the things that a Biden administration could do for birds and conservation 
even in their first few days. Rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, rebuilding the scientific infrastructure and decision making. Mm. Um, he can stop processing permits to drill on public land. Um, you know, it, he can help with greenhouse gas regulation, uh, perhaps. I, well, and, and maybe that gets into some legislative stuff. But uh, I think that all those things can happen with, uh, you know, executive authority. But we do. And I mean, I think it's fair to predict, even without the knowledge of exactly where the hundreds, the you know, around hundred political appointees that Trump has made mm-hmm. in his four years, without knowing whether or not those folks are political activists on the court, um, we can expect a lot of strict uh, statutory interpretations of authority, just as the logical pendulum swing from a president who <laughs> was very yeah. broad and very, very liberal, I guess, in that way, with yeah. with his authority, I think that the courts are going to be looking to legitimize their institutionality uh, by hmm. by having, I think that we can predict future interpretations, even environmental, to uh, be a lot more strict. Yeah. I'm hoping at the very least we can stop, at least for maybe four years, not worrying about like these sort of weird changes to things like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, like we talked about last time you were here. <laughs> like, yeah, we, right? we talked about some of the ridiculous justifications that were used mm-hmm. to undermine that landmark piece of environmental legislation. I, I look forward to not having to be so aware of what is going on as far as that's concerned. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's something to think about, too, because when we talk about and part of what we were talking about with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, um, was just like the rulemaking process and, you know, what informs what when we're thinking right. about what's the best way to do conservation. You know, mentioning that the Biden-Harris administration is looking for ways to rebuild that scientific infrastructure. That's mm-hmm. going to be so important in making a lot more future decisions when, you know, when yeah. we're talking about, yes, issues of conservation and climate change, uh, but also when we're talking about cybersecurity and also when we're talking about how we can uh, do agriculture in a smarter way that isn't <laughs> yeah. ruining our land, but us, right. but helping the people and you know the animals that need it. Yeah, absolutely. Within the executive branch, there are a bunch of cabinet positions and sort of almost cabinet positions that sort of influence the environment and birds. What should birders be on the lookout for in the coming weeks in terms of people filling those roles and the types of people that we would like to see filling those roles? I will say for me, my appetite probably won't get started until there are committee hearings, you know, (laughs) because we unfortunately are working um, with, you know, a a potential majority that won't hear a single nomination if, you know, they they don't like them. So it is very possible for us to, uh, you know, have potential nominees that will never get a hearing uh, because of political Ramble, ramble. Now, barring mm-hmm. a Manchurian candidate type situation of someone <laughs> walking in more moderate and actually being a lot more progressive, I think we need people who will not just bring integrity back to the positions of mm-hmm. leadership in these departments, but we also need folks who are active listeners. And we need folks who, you know, are coming in with the experience that they have and, you know, uh, and are high achievers. And I'm pretty sure a lot of these folks are highly qualified. Um, but still having the opportunity to listen to folks who are being immediately affected by your decisions, and especially yeah. the folks who are disproportionately affected by the burden of consequences 
often unattended, but often never thought of or as an afterthought to to some of these decisions. So I think that um, when we're thinking about who are who's in these roles, let's think about uh, making sure we are being reflective of what this country is, what this country represents, um, and, and also being reflective of what this country is going to be in, you know, by 2050, where we know uh, the majority of folks in this country are people will be people of color, not white people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, I think that this administration has an opportunity to reflect that potential. And, um, you know, barring, like I said, uh, you know, the uh, Senate majority that won't take a hearing potentially. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, this will be a very positive change to uh, a lot of folks perspective on government and how government leaders make decisions. Yeah. At least this current administration, the outgoing administration has sort of laid the groundwork for ways to get people in those positions without going through the, the Senate confirmation uh, yeah. hearing. So, you know, good for the goose, good for the gander, I guess. But uh, I mean, well, you know, and there's something interesting about that because the Pinley decision where, you know, is are all of the decisions that he made unconstitutional because he wasn't meant to serve right. in that role, yeah. you know, and I know that, you know, if anything, like I was saying earlier, you know, I think that we can expect a lot more strict interpretation of authority. You know, if I if I'm predicting this right, you know, I think that if we do see acting roles more than the confirmed roles, then those acting roles will have a lot less authority to actually administer the mission of the department. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably really early. And, you know, there's people jostling for positions in this incoming cabinet. But funnily enough, one of the one of the things that I've seen is um, the Department of the Interior, which is, you know, the one that handles the Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Park Service. Uh, it's sort of the one that when you look at potential interests for birders and conservationists and environmentalists, it's sort of the one that stands out. And I've seen a few names kind of thrown around um, more than some of the more glamorous positions like state or defense or whatever which is odd but a uh, couple couple interesting names stood out there was there anyone there that that seems you know interesting to you uh i mean you know if i'm throwing things out there you know uh, representative deb holland um mm -hmm. i think a position in the department of the interior uh, could be an opportunity to advance a lot of things that hadn't had voice in that department uh, that can be an opportunity to really um <laughs> put motivation and put some wheels on projects that can be moving in that department that can make meaningful differences in folks' lives, especially out, you know, in the Western states where most of the square footage of that state, most of the square mileage of that state is federal land. So yeah. often the federal leaders, you know, the folks in BLM, the folks in Fish and Wildlife, the folks in Forest Service um, have a lot of say in how things go. You know, this is why I think it's important that we have leaders that know how to listen because, yeah. you know, you can come to this position with the knowledge and experience and, you know, background that you have. But we will see as this election has called and as, you know, even elections, I think, into the future, when we listen to the people, you know, the, the, the folks will make it very clear about what what we need in this country. I mean, we had more folks vote for for both candidates, one, obviously, Joe Biden winning. Uh, getting more than any other president, I think that means something, you know, uh, folks turning out. I think that part of that is, you know, making it easier to vote. But another part of it is uh, showing that your vote goes directly into a process that involves more than just voting. 
that will eventually make a meaningful difference in your life. And the hope is it's a positive one <laughs> and yeah. not yeah. one that is um, uh, burdensome. Yeah, you, you mentioned that the you know the western part of the country is the one that has a lot of the public lands that are under the auspices of the the Department of the Interior. It is always funny, like in in my political awareness, it's always been like a spot for some Western senator or representative who like looks good in a cowboy hat <laughs> more <laughs> than just about anything. Um, so you mentioned Deb Holland, yeah, that she would be she'd be a fantastic choice. I would like to see someone in that position in the Interior who does acknowledge the other users of that land as well. And I would, I would hope that um, she could be that. I have no reason to believe otherwise. I heard leadership on the House Natural Resources Committee, you know, being the yeah. first woman representing an indigenous tribe here yeah. in this country to have that role. You know, I think that means a lot and a lot can be advanced, you know, in that way. But I think that there's also a lot of opportunity in the administration, you know, that mm-hmm. as a, you know, potential guess if we're just throwing baloney against the wall, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah. Which is, you know, why not? <laughs> that's, that's the fun thing to do anyway. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would like to see sort of non-traditional users of that land prioritized. Um, as you mentioned, Holland uh, would be, I think, the first indigenous person ever to hold the position of secretary of the interior, which is pretty amazing. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, just just interest in, you know, groups that are not necessarily the the old fashioned, you know, hook and bullet kind of club. I mean, obviously, people use public lands in different ways uh, mm-hmm. now than they ever have. And having someone that, you know, acknowledges the importance of birders and hikers and campers and all sorts of kind of non-consumptive or less consumptive users of these lands would be a real step in the right direction, I think. Absolutely. And, and I don't know a better way to bring the country together right now than bird watching. Yeah, I hear you. And I so I think birding with Biden, it, you know, I, I've said it, you know, with <laughs> I've said it with a lot of folks that I, I really believe birding is a coalition builder. And, you know, it took a coalition to get Biden and Harris into the White House. It's going to take a coalition to continue the work that got us into the doorstep. You know, again, uh, this is not the destination. You know, the movement uh, may have a few stops. Um, and, and this is one where we can celebrate and really think about and, and learn from the lessons of this hard work. Yeah. I think that as a burden community, though, uh, we need to uh, take seriously the connection between public health outcomes and environmental mm-hmm. conditions. That means listening to the birds, absolutely, but that also means listening to the people <laughs> because yeah. the people will tell you, too, you know, there's a reason why we're not seeing birds over here, or, you know, there's a reason why it's harder. To, to get folks to get to this place because it's on a super fun site, you know? Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of environmental justice awareness opportunities that uh, will, will, I think we will see the resumes of so many uh, potential appointees publicized and seeing uh, more to light this work that's happening all across this country, you know, in, in different corners and in different pockets. And I think ultimately it's going to be a lot of stories of organizers, community organizers, folks who uh, in their own community said, hey, this is something that's wrong. Not only do I think we deserve better, we can do something now to make a difference. And then they did, you know, and I think that um, that's something I'm really excited to hear uh, and, and again, see all these folks resumes that are going to be publicized um, and, and seeing that this next presidential administration, the folks that they pick for it. You know, those leaders are going to be reflective of who's in this country today and who's going to be in this country tomorrow. Yeah. And I think the birding community 
in general is really well set to be able to push for some of these changes that we want to see as well. You know, you, you talked about the importance of organizing and the importance of having these groups. Well, you know, we already have our bird clubs. We have our, you know, Audubon chapters. We already have this kind of infrastructure set ready to, you know, make some changes, ready to move. All we have to do is is have a direction and uh, and some and things to move towards, and I think we'll be well well set to get the birding community involved that way as well. I like to be the one who who like to you know I felt certain in that uh, you know Biden was going to win uh, back when he won the nomination, and so I'm always trying to think a couple steps ahead now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to remind folks that the House is going to be in play 2022. Mm-hmm. You know that that House majority that that was an amazing referendum on on Trump in a lot of ways in 2022 uh, it's very possible that a lot of congressional districts will become battlegrounds for mm-hmm. um you know that very uh common reverse referendum that that incumbent presidents see in their midterms basically so and the census redistricting too oh yeah 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 <laughs> having the advantage to be like yeah let me pick my voters because i know 10 years from now if not me someone who represents my interest and my history will be in this seat so it's just like well that's cheat codes basically <laughs> that's something yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what do you think birders looking ahead to a new administration should do like obviously say like we're not out of the woods Mm-mm, not at all i mean supporting right now efforts to get more folks voting is of paramount importance 365 uh you know regardless of how close the next election is uh making sure folks are educated on the issues i think um there are a ton of bird organizations that have great updates constant alerts about opportunities to uh, take action but, you know, I, I think right now, let's celebrate, let's enjoy, let's rest. Um, let's think about, um, you know, starting that year list up again. You know, I'm close to 200. I'm at 193 right now. I, I'm trying to finish at 200. We'll see if I get there by the end of the year. If not, that's fine. But, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, right. it, Try again next exactly. year. Exactly. And, you know, that's this is an uncertain thing that I can manage my expectations for. You know, I, I like that the that's stakes true. for this yeah. are much more low and, and, and controllable. Um, <laughs> and so I just hope that everybody yeah. can take, you know, a step or two back and, and, and build that perspective, you know, and think about how they can share yeah. the joy of birding as well as the education about the issues that are important to birders, like conservation, like mm-hmm. who's coming out with you in the field, who feels safe and making sure we're thinking about and considering accessibility, not as an afterthought, but as mm-hmm. um, a, a part of the co-creative process when we're thinking about how we do bird walks, even though we are, you know, still social distancing or, or you know, physically distancing and, and finding ways to, you know, share this love and education virtually. That's great. I have, I have one last question for you. Uh, you're a Philly birder, even though you live in D.C. Mm-hmm. now. Have you been birding near Four Seasons Total Landscaping? <laughs> uh, you know, I hadn't had the opportunity, but I am I am going to say now <laughs> no, I am great. a big Looks fan awesome. of the uh, Fraud Street Run, um, which is <laughs> oh, <laughs> from yeah? Four Seasons to Four Seasons. <laughs> it's a beautiful. <laughs> I've right. seen the route. It's very beautiful. Look at it on the Philly Inquirer. You know, I got to yeah. support the local paper. <laughs> and, and it's funny that you even right. mentioned that I'm, I'm wearing my like one of my Philly shirts right now. I'm wearing like a, it's a, yeah, it, yeah. in real life, it's called a uh, pileated woodpecker. 
but in Philadelphia, when you're in the, the city line, you know, when you're within the uh, city limits, you call it affiliated woodpecker. <laughs> so that's oh, remember yeah, that. Please do. Please do. <laughs> Any person from Philly heard me say that joke. They're like, oh, he said it again. Oh, God, he did it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you can listen to Tyke James on his podcast, Onward for Wildlife. It's part of the Wildlife Observer Network. You can get all, all your Philly jokes, Philly woodpecker jokes <laughs> out there. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Glad we could do this. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides, please consider joining the ABA. It's a great time to do that. We have memberships at whatever level. Gift memberships also make good holiday presents. Just throwing that out there as we get closer to that time of year. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Brody and Devin Pierce of Brunswick, Georgia, Heather Hoffling of Cottonwood, Arizona, Lane Hobelt and the whole Hobelt family of Tullahoma, Tennessee, Craig Wright of Pershore, United Kingdom, Joe Kwasniewski of West Bloomfield, Michigan, Mark Plusinski of Cincinnati, Ohio, and Joseph Petrie of Buffalo, New York, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so, so much for that. It really does mean a lot. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who sees the DeWins attracting brown jays with marshmallows and chicken skin and raises salmon skin for stellar sea eagles. Technical production is by John Lowry, who notes that evening gross beaks might come to black oil sunflower seeds, but if you want to get those fancy European finches like Hawfinches or Oriental Greenfinch, you're going to have to get those fancy mixed nuts from the Williams-Sonoma Christmas catalog. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who have had phenomenal luck attracting sandpipers to their feeding stations with buckets of rancid crab meat. Your mileage may vary. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. You know, I have found that a great way to attract rare goals is by carrying around a bag full of garbage and just sort of scattering it liberally wherever I go. It's sort of a pocket-sized landfill, right? For anyone who wants to carry around a dump in their pants. I wish I could take credit for that when our friends at Eagle Optics used it many years ago. I'll put the link in the notes. It's a very funny video. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.